Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everybody. Going to start our session on sex this morning. So uh, we're in a series of sermons entitled Two Little Birdies talking about marriage and we've reached the section where we want to uh, begin discussing biblical sex which should just be a, a very beneficial time for the next two sessions for everybody here a um, couple just upfront things that I wanted to make you guys aware of today is the opening day of Advent and so for those of you that aren't familiar with the church calendar the church calendar moves in rhythms and follows the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus well the first Sunday before Easter is the beginning of the advent season and so you know not growing up in the church i never got to experience what advent was about and what it was for and i really want to encourage you fathers to be leading your families over these next 23 days now towards christmas in nightly meditations on jesus christ and the incarnation there are tons of tools if you have little kids if you have more teenage kids if it's just you and your wife if you're a single there are tons of online tools. I posted one of them on the city that we're going to be using this year in my family. I really want to encourage you to take the month of December and commit it to Jesus. And so, Pastor Dad, take the lead in that process and lead your family towards Jesus and his reality this Christmas season. So, with that said, uh, we're going to get right to work here this morning. You guys ready to talk about this? Is everybody ready to rock and roll? Yeah, uh, kind of. Yeah, there we go. That's great. God-glorifying sex. Father, we, uh, we know that sex is a gift from you and um, our culture and uh, really the Christian community itself has um, missed what you have for us. And so, gracious Father, we turn our hearts to you now. We trust you. We trust you to reform our marriages. We trust you to speak to us and to teach us. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, we lay down our lives as living sacrifices. It's the only reasonable thing that we can do in light of all that you have given to us. So today, Lord, for the sake of eternity, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of holiness and joy, we pray that you would take our marriages and our marriage beds and let them be holy and filled with passion and joy. That the, the cherry on top of our marriages, sexuality, Father, would just 
explode with worship-filled, glory-giving truth. So bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So up until this point, we've dealt with some broad topics. We've dealt with the roots of marriage, which fall back on the Trinity. God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, how he loves himself. Though he is three separate personages, he is one. And from that, we experience and derive our definitions of love and pleasure and delight and intimacy. We've dealt with the supports of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is an unconditional, unilateral commitment, one party unto another. Marriage is based on a relationship where there is equality in the relationship, but there are role responsibilities within that relationship. And so we moved on and we talked about some of those role responsibilities. The wife, her specific role within the marriage, the way that she has been wired is as submissive helper. If those words inflame you at this moment, please go and listen to those sermons. Yes, they mean what they mean and they are holy and they are good words and they are godly words and they will bring the greatest joy to you as you fulfill your role as submissive helper, wife. And the husband is called to be the servant head. He's to be the sacrificial leader, laying down his life for his wife. We then talked about conflict and communication, and now that brings us to today. We only have about three or four more sessions left in Two Little Birdies where we're talking about biblical sex and where we're going to be talking about raising biblical babies. So with all of that said, some of us may be asking the question, why talk about such an embarrassing topic on Sunday morning? Why, Danny? Is this just to get all of our faces red and have us sit and squirm in our seats as we talk about this extremely uncomfortable topic on a Sunday gathering? Sunday morning, they're, they're for sermons, not S-E-X, not that word. It's so inappropriate. And, and I would propose to you that if your response to discussing sex at the Sunday morning gathering is how inappropriate, how embarrassing, how not right for what the church should really be talking about, that in and of itself is an issue that needs addressing. The mere fact that Christian culture squirms under the topic of sex and finds our faces turning a little bit red needs addressing. The mere fact that we would associate sex with something that God is not into, that God has not given to us, that God is not glorified in, that God doesn't want us doing, tells me as a pastor that the church needs some recalibrating and some retraining on what sex is, why God gave us sex, and how he is glorified in it. So I want to give to you here as we open up this morning, three reasons for these talks, and then we're going to wrap up with three reasons God created sex. Some of you have messaged me some questions that we're going to try to answer at the end of this session. This morning, just so you're aware of where we're going over the next two weeks. This morning is building what I call a theology of sex, kind of who God is and why God has given us sex. And then next Sunday, we'll get into the, some of the mechanics of what the Bible says about sex, the how-tos, the what-not-tos, the this and the that of sex. And so be staying tuned. Three reasons we've got to talk about sex openly and often within the biblical community, within the church, We need to be talking about sex frankly, and we need to be talking about it based on what the Bible says about it. Number one reason this morning, God created sex 
for our good and his glory. The passage that we read this morning in the beginnings of humanity, at the very beginning of humanity, God creates man and woman. God brings man and woman together in marital covenant union. And the text is very clear that they were naked and they were unashamed. Because in the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect knowledge of what God had created and they experienced perfect good in what God had given to them. Because God created sex for our good and for his glory, we can understand and we can recognize this morning that God is not surprised by human sexuality. God is not shocked by physical attraction. God is not embarrassed. God did not think that Adam and Eve were doing anything that they should not be doing in the garden when they were naked, they were one flesh, they were together, and God was with them, and God was singing over them, and God was glorified in their union, in their intimacy, in their sexuality. I think for us as a community of people, it's of vital importance that to be comfortable in our sexuality and to be comfortable in our sex lives with our spouses, we've got to get through this kind of lie. Believing that God is frowning upon our sexuality, believing that for some of you fellows that are just saturated, all of us, with imagery and pornography, that whenever we have those desires and those attractions, God is not up there going, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that you just thought that. No, God is totally aware of our thoughts and not shocked by them. Ladies, that desire for emotional, deep connectivity and intimacy to the degree of physical union, God is not embarrassed by that at all. God is not embarrassed by our bodies. God is not ashamed of our bodies. God is not worried about our body images. God in the garden said, get naked, have babies, and enjoy this thing that I've given you. And as believers, we need to come back to that mentality. Get naked, have babies, and enjoy this thing that I've given you. The further down the road we can get in that thinking as we talk about this, the more healthy our sex lives will be and the more healthy our marriages will be. Along with this, because God created sex for our good and for his glory, we as his children experience flourishing. When we understand what God has given to us, we experience our highest good. We experience what life is truly to be like. We're not missing out on some of the gifts that God desires to give to us. And then number three, underneath this first point here, God creating sex for our good and his glory. God is actually glorified by sex. What does that mean? God being glorified by sex? It means that in the midst of a man and a woman, in marital covenant union, coming together in the most intimate way, experiencing the heights of pleasure and delight, in that place, the man and the woman, whether they are conscious of this or not, are saying, God, you are glorious. You are magnificent to create this. You are powerful and wise. You are wonderful. Your creative genius in, to be very frank, in creating the sensations and the feelings and the emotions and the, the delight that goes into good, biblical, marital, sexual union, 
God, you are absolutely amazing. And so we must, as a community of people, talk often and openly, biblically and frankly about sex because God created it for our good and he created it for his glory. Number two, number two reason that we need to talk often and openly about sex in the church. God talks about sex all the time through the Bible. The Bible is not a book that dismisses or edits out any of the sexual actions and attractions of humanity. In fact, the Bible over and over and over talks about sex in a number of different ways. Now here at Taproot Church, we believe that the primary way that God speaks to humanity is through the Bible. We believe that it is spirit-inspired. That is, that men wrote it. They had their own personalities and their pen was moving. But as their pen was moving, God the Holy Spirit was in them, working the words onto the page as if it was his own voice. And so page after page of God's love letter to us, the Bible, his word to us, addresses issues of sexuality, sexual action, sexual attraction. The Bible clearly talks about the context for sex as an example. Who may we have sex with? Who may we not have sex with? As we read here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that account that we read this morning, that is literally the first marriage, and it is the description of the first honeymoon, that the man will leave, and he will cleave to his wife. That Hebrew word cleave is a very powerful, very detailed word, talking about the the unifying, the intimate communion that happens in that consummation of the marital covenant. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so not only does God's word talk to us about marriage and yes, I do, and yes, I do before God and man and witnesses, but it also talks about what happens within marriage in the marriage bed and says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. It is a holy place where God says, my presence is in the marriage bed. Talking here about the context for sex, the Old Testament and the New Testament have multiple references on who we may be having sex with and who not to have sex with. Namely, The Bible outlines very clearly over and over and over, sex is to be had between a man and a woman who are married. That's it. If you don't get anything from the next two or three weeks of messages, take this home and let it just bear fruit. If you are married, you should be having a ton of great sex. If you are not married, you should not be having any sex, including oral and self. And we'll talk more about that. We can address those questions uh, as time goes on. Most of this will be addressed in our next session next Sunday. But for our time here this morning, recognize that the Bible clearly sets the context for sex. And so in our culture where homosexuality prevails and, and the notion that a man is born to love another man sexually simply flies in the face of the Bible. And, and I want to address this gently and carefully. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to just stop and wait for the whole thing to... (laughs) Okay, good. Um, 
we want to address this issue of homosexuality carefully because I think in our culture there are some in this room who maybe are coming out of same-sex relationships, some who are struggling with same-sex attraction, and what needs to be addressed in the gospel of grace is that homosexuality itself is no different a sin than lust, it is no different a sin than pride, it is no different a sin than stealing, it is no different sin than lying. For some reason, the Christian church has taken homosexuality and put it as like, this is the really bad sin. When in fact, it is not. It is no different sin than any other. And so, within homosexuality, same-sex attraction is not sin. And I just want to set your hearts at ease. If some of you are struggling with that today, same-sex attraction is not sin, but same-sex action is. And so the Bible talks very frankly about Fighting with those desires. Just like you may get mad and have a desire to punch somebody in the face till you kill them. Well, that's murder. You can't do that. That's sin. God outlines for us the sexual parameters and homosexuality is not one of them. Though there are portions of the church that are desperate now to try to embrace homosexuality as biblically normative, it is very obvious that it's not. Some other things that the Bible says are not to be done within human sexuality is bestiality and zoophilia, that's sex with animals, pedophilia, sex with children, incest, sex with your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. The Bible is just very clear about these parameters with who not to be having sex with. It goes on and it talks about the damaging effects of polygamy. The Bible is not condoning polygamy. When you read the stories of polygamy where a man has one, two, three, multiple wives, People can take away from that, oh, look, the Bible condones polygamy. No, in all the cases of polygamy, what results from that is a train wreck. Lives are messed up. Hearts are messed up. Families are messed up. And so the stories of the Bible that detail out polygamy aren't there to condone polygamy. They simply describe that this is what the people were doing and that it was bearing horrific fruit. The Bible gives to us the dangers of yoking with unbelievers that we're not to be intimately connected to somebody who is not of the same spirit and who does not have the same worldview as us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible makes very clear that it is a horror, it's a monstrosity to yoke ourselves with a prostitute. Adultery. It is just over and over and over stated. One man, one moment, within marriage, God is there, God is present in The Bible goes on and talks even more deeply beyond just the physical act of sex. The Bible details out the heart act of sex. What's going on within the human heart? Jesus would say to us men and to women as well, if you lust with your eyes, pluck your eye out. And he wasn't saying literally pluck your eye out. What Jesus was saying was fight desperately to have a pure heart. When your heart that is sexual, your heart is sexual operate in self-control in the power of the Holy Spirit and do whatever you can to be battling with those desires and focus those desires within marriage. So the Bible talks clearly about the context for sex, when, where, with who, who not. This is why we need to be talking about sexuality on the Sunday gathering times, but also the Bible talks about the how-tos of sex. And this is what we're going to deal with next week in much more detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 addresses the issues of desire, serving, and frequency. The Bible is not ashamed to lay out for us what kind of desires 
should humanity have? What kind of desire should a man and woman be expressing one for another? The Bible talks about serving and, and the frequency, the, the, the number of times of sex. And it doesn't give to us, you know, chapter 1, verse 2 of first sexuality, that book. It doesn't give us like you have sex five times a week. It doesn't give us any of those things, but it does give to us principles for healthy sexuality within marriage. Wisdom from Proverbs commends an ever-increasing delight in the sexual union. Listen to this, Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Gentlemen, wisdom says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's not talking about chicken breast dinner either. That's talking about the real deal right there. That is talking about her body. And the fountain is that overflow of passion and love. And the Bible says, gentlemen, grow in your sexuality. Grow in your sexual desire for your wife. Be ever more delighted in her. Be ever more connected to her. Let her satisfy you completely. And the Bible is all about that. The Bible pushes that. The Bible rejoices in that. Here is where the Bible gets so frank. There's a little tiny book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. Commentators through the history of the church have squirmed under the weight of Song of Solomon because it's essentially Hebrew erotica. It is very graphic language describing the marriage bed of a woman marrying a king. And it does not hold any punches. I'll give you a couple examples just as kind of a, a, I don't know, a pointer to where we're going next week. In the Song of Solomon in chapter 7, the man has met with his wife, his bride, and he is basically checking her out from foot to head. And in the text it says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. He just begins praising her. The Bible talks frankly about how to have sex that is godly and beautiful and enjoyable. And so the man praises her body saying, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. At this point, commentators through the history of the church have all winced because it's not referring to her navel. It is referring to the most intimate place on a woman's body. And he is directly praising her. He is directly addressing the most intimate, vulnerable place on a woman's body with great joy and great passion. He goes on up her body saying, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. I don't know why they were so into deers and fawns and gazelles. They just were. But your neck is like an ivory tower. Now, here's what's interesting about the Song of Solomon. The woman is primarily the aggressor in the Song of Solomon. And my precious sisters, when we get to next Sunday, we will address the, the psychological and the cultural hindrances that a lot of you face in your sexuality with your husbands. Um, we've got to break through those barriers. Because what we have in the Song of Solomon is a very frank, very transparent discussion. And the primary aggressor in the relationship sexually is the wife, the woman. Here's just one little snippet of her words to her husband. Because through the Song of Solomon, she is essentially stripping. She is essentially chasing after. She is longing. She is singing to him. She is pleading with him to be near her, to take her, to have her. She is filled with desire. She is unashamed. She is confident in who she is. And she knows what she wants. One of the most hilarious verses in Song of Solomon's verse, chapter 5, verse 14 
she says to her to her husband on the night they're together, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. At this point, the translators can't even get themselves to translate what the actual Hebrew text says. I'll just leave it to your minds, but this is what the actual Hebrew text says. His blank is an elephant tusk of polished ivory. His belly? (laughs) Unashamed. This lady is looking at her aroused, naked husband. And she is saying, amazing, wonderful. No embarrassment. Because what happens here is when God's people talk about God's glorifying sex as a good gift, we go back to the garden where we are naked and unashamed and making babies and having a fantastic time. And this is God's gracious desire for some of us. Actually, for all of us. And I would say that for some of us, I personally recognize that this is going to, this may light off like a sex bomb in your, in your marriages where all of a sudden you realize, wow, we haven't been having enough sex or wow, we've been too restrained in our sex or man, I, I just don't enjoy sex. And all of these condemning thoughts are going to start flowing through your minds. But know this, that there's a, there's a learning curve coming. We want to set this theology of sex so that the how-tos of sex come much easier. God created sex for our good and his glory. God talks about sex in his word often and openly. Third reason that we must talk about sex here on these Sunday mornings and why we're doing these sessions together is culture talks about sex sinfully. The culture around us is talking about sex nonstop in advertisements, in magazines, in the movies, on the internet, in porn, in selling, in... You cannot go through your day without this society talking to you about sex, defining sex for you, telling you what sex is, telling you how you should look when you have sex, telling you how to gain sexual attraction, telling you all sorts of things sinfully about sex. And for some reason that I've never been able to figure out from the first day that I got into the church and I was watching these kids just losing their minds because they had hormones squirting out of their ears and they had all this sexual desire and the church was just like, don't talk about sex, get away from sex. And then there's the culture with the bikinis and the lingerie and the porno and these 20-year-old dudes going, what do I do? And nobody was talking about it, but the culture was teaching that. And I came out of a very, very sexual past into the church world where I honestly could not talk about my past because I felt like I'd get struck with lightning. I was so scared in the church because I was around all of these pure people. And the culture had trained me well that sex was fun, that sex was a conquest, that sex was for power, that sex was for pleasure, that you could just, everything was about sex in the culture. And then I got into the church and it was like the word is mom. And I could not figure it out for the life of me. And so here we find ourselves today addressing this issue that sticking our heads in the sand on sexuality as believing people, it is unloving. The world around us, your friends, your family members, your neighbors, maybe you there in your seat, you actually worship sex. You base your life, your identity, your meaning on sexuality, sexual appearance, sexual attraction, and sexual activity. And for us as the church to with embarrassment and shame, stick our heads in the sand because we don't believe that God created it for our good. We don't believe that God is glorified in it. 
We don't really understand how much he talks about it and how much he is about it and how glorified he is in it. For us to stick our heads in the sand is to leave this society to itself. Sex is to be redeemed. Remember, as a community of people, we are laboring to show the world what humanity is actually to be lived like. And at the top of the list should be great sex for married couples for humanity. And so the culture is talking about sex often. And it uses it and distorts it and abuses it and defiles sex. So we have to find ourselves talking about it. And I'll I'll tell you this just very candidly. And when we get to our sessions on raising children, this will be brought up again. But the culture is training our children sexually at a very young age. Um, Statistics say that right now, 15, at the age of 15, half of kids, half half of the kids 15 to 17 years old, according to one study, have engaged in oral sex. If you're 15 years old, you have a 15-year-old teenage daughter or a teenage son, 10 of their friends come over, five of them are already involved in that level of intimacy. And for those of you that are your classic single, dating somebody, getting married, the how far can we go question, I would say sex begins long before intercourse. If there is orgasm and if there is intimacy, if there is great arousal, you are being sexual. And you are not married. Let me, let me just make this very graphic for you guys. Paint this picture so that we kind of rip off the facade of not wanting to talk about this. The culture is training our kids so young. Uh, maybe two months ago, and I asked my daughter if I could share this, and she said, yeah, I'd like the church to pray for me. Sophia was in her little school classroom, and, and um, there was a little boy that had taken a liking to her, and my daughter's nine, just so everybody knows. This little boy kind of began, you know, teasing her a little bit, and in the name of getting to her, he began saying that this other little boy liked her. One day, this little boy gets her in the corner and says to her, hey, so-and-so really likes you. When are you going to go on a date with so-and-so? And my daughter's like, I, I mean, I'm not. It's crazy. I'm not. And then he goes on and he, he keeps pushing her. And he says, hey, so-and-so, so-and-so wants to get you in bed. And my daughter's like, that's crazy. He goes so far as to push her to the point where she's so uncomfortable. And he says, hey, you need to know so-and-so wants to get you in bed. She's nine. She's nine. We began having the sex talk with my kids when they were five. Some of you are putting your hands on your head, five years old, talking about sex. It's either going to be me and a holy, beautiful presentation of something that God has given us to glorify himself and good for married couples, or it's going to be the culture and you two. Over and over and over. I am listening to seven to nine-year-olds in relationship with my kids who are posting videos of themselves online in the shower with their girlfriend at nine. Listen, if you are a parent, pull your head out of the sand. Get it out and realize where we live and understand what the culture is saying and what the culture is doing around us because the depravity moves from the adults to the children. And we see this in fallen societies all through history. Society reaches a point where it degrades to where now the children and the babies are born into that society and what is called normal becomes their norm. So we as a people need to be talking rightly about sex. 
And what happens in that is as you come here to these gatherings and you begin learning and you begin growing and you begin understanding who Jesus is, how much he loves you, how much he wants to give to you, you then can take that back out to the world around you so that, you know, your girlfriend who slept with 18 guys last year because she's so desperate for intimacy, you're able to sit down and share with her, did you know that this sexuality, there's more to it than just being with guys? There's more to your identity. There's more value to you than what a guy can use you for. Gentlemen, when we're talking about sexuality and we talk about it on these Sunday gatherings, we talk about it in accord with the Bible, we can begin to have our minds cleansed. And then we don't have to be afraid of some of the crazy stuff that we want to do in bed, whether that's porn informed or just God the Holy Spirit saying, hey, here's an idea. We don't have to be ashamed of that. We actually get to move forward in that with our wives in open conversations and then the world looks on and I guarantee you if you guys are trying to bring people to these sessions and somebody is here today that does not yet know Jesus doesn't know the Bible they're sitting around going whoa I didn't know any of this because the church never talks about this this makes sex great this makes sex wonderful I don't feel guilty I don't feel ashamed in marriage so there's our three reasons why we're going to be having these talks and now here's what I want to close us with theology of sex, three reasons that God created sex. Three reasons that God created sex. Reflection, procreation, and recreation. Reflection, procreation, and recreation. Reflection, procreation, and recreation. Reflection, what does that mean? Ultimately, you guys, human sexuality is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It is an act of reflecting who God is. This is why human sexuality in fallen society is the first that gets deformed. When a society begins to falter, it begins to worship sex, and then the sex deforms. The sex becomes a deity that is worshipped. This is why the porn industry is a trillion, over a trillion dollar a year industry. Because we worship sexuality, we worship it is it is it becomes a very expression of who and what we are this is why satan and sin seeks to deform sexuality and people will start having sex same sex homosexuality is a deformity of good healthy worshipful sex in fact i would just propose to you that homosexuality is the ultimate expression of self-worship it is sex with oneself bestiality pedophilism incest polygamy all of these things have their roots in humanity beginning to worship a fallen creation, worship themselves, worship animals, and desiring to unite with self, unite with an animal, unite with a family member, unite with multiple wives, multiple partners in multiple ways, unite with them in the most intimate, vital way because sexuality is a worship issue. And so as God created sex, he created it to reflect himself. How so? Number one, two beings literally become one. Just as God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate personages, but one, human sexuality is a reflection of that. Where two physical bodies that are separate literally become one flesh. And it goes so much deeper than that. It is not only in body, but it is in soul as well. On the body uniting, I, I think it's important to note this. Science is finally catching up with what theology has always known, and biophysicists and bioscientists and biologists are beginning to discover all of these chemicals that are produced in the human body, from simple things just like a touch on the hand, holding hands, all the way through to orgasm, and the chemicals that are produced in those moments 
they have long scientific names for those chemicals, but essentially what they're discovering is that those moments of intercourse and orgasm produce between the two united a literal physiological union. The brain creates all of these chemicals that are powerful and passionate and addictive. Neural pathways are created with every moment of intimacy between a man and a woman to where as a man and a woman over the years are engaged in sexual activity together monogamously, slowly but surely those chemicals are creating neural pathways that glue them together. They become addicted to each other. This is why, and this is only one of many things that's so dangerous about pornography. What happens in and with pornography is that the brain is wired to only be aroused and become addicted to, glued to specific imagery. This is what happens with fetishes, where individuals will only be able to be turned on or aroused by some sort of off-kilter or strange device of sexuality. I actually heard one guy preaching and teaching on this, and he had been speaking with some doctors who, who literally said that if a young man masturbates just to a, a sock, no imagery at all, slowly but surely he'll reach a point where only that sock will arouse him. This is the danger of pornography. This is the danger of self-sex. This is the danger of, of, of not connecting ourselves to our wives, to our husbands in that bonding way because God is reflecting himself in literally two physical bodies becoming one, literally being glued together. But beyond that, it is also within soul. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God somehow, guys, supernaturally unites a man and woman in their soul and in their spirit through human sexuality. It is a reflection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and being, but two separate people. It is beautiful, it is mysterious, it is glorious, it is holy, it is worshipful. I would exhort every one of you that are married, begin praying over your sex life. Pray over it. Pray over it. Ask God to bless it mightily, to make it more passionate, more glorious, more wonderful. Next week we'll talk about a lot of the hindrances to our sex lives. It is a reflection of the heights of pleasure and intimate presence. What does that mean? We talked about this in our first session. God in the Trinity, he experiences pleasure. He is delighted as he is intimate with the Son and with the Father and the Spirit as they are so closely united, as they are one, there is this overflow of delight and pleasure and joy and passion and laughter. And so too within human sexuality that is healthy, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear, there's no lack of transparency and vulnerability and in that moment of greatest pleasure there is this reflection of the pleasure of God and I would propose to you and I want to word this very carefully so that nobody labels us some sort of weird sex cult which that has happened to us before but listen just think through this logically and divorce your minds from the porn and the disgustingness of this culture and and think in a holy way but at the moment of highest pleasure in sexual intimacy the moment of orgasm, that very possibly is just a a very small glimpse into the realities of the eternal pleasures of God. Danny, are you saying heaven's going to be an eternal orgasm? No. (laughs) No, I'm not saying that. That would be awesome, though. (laughs) 
But I am saying that I think that that, that, that experiential moment of pleasure, that moment of, of just the height of passion and, and where everything is just free and released, that may be just a small glimpse into the, the eternal pleasures of God and his people as they are one. Just food for thought. Just stuff to be praying through. We see that within human sexuality, it's a reflection of the perfect knowledge of one another. God knows himself perfectly, and there is no greater way to know another human being than sexual union. There is the the physical vulnerability, there is the intimacy, there is the soul uniting, and you begin to know each other. You begin to become comfortable. You become uh, perfectly aware of each other's presence and desires and points and it's, it's glorious. It is a worshipful act. God gave us sex as a reflection of himself. Let that drive your sexuality within your marriages. Number two, God gave us sexuality as a, a point of procreation. Procreation is the birth of babies. Now, I want to say this very clearly. Infertility. Infertility in couples is a tremendously painful trial. At this church, we love babies. We pray for piles of babies. We want more babies. And at the same time, we want to honor our dear and beloved sisters who have been counted worthy to suffer a very painful trial. And the brothers who have prayed for babies or miscarried babies, we want to continue to pray for them, nurture them, as God has called them and counted them worthy for a a very tremendously painful trial. But if infertility is a painful trial, I would say that avoiding children as a liability is a sinful tragedy period. I'm super opinionated on this, and I think I've got Bible background and backup for what I'm about to say. Our society says, have as much sex as you want with anybody you want in any way that you want to outside of marriage. Don't have any babies. Those babies are going to cost you. They're going to cost you time. They're going to cost you money. They're going to cost you career. God says that those babies are actually rewards and that humanity, mommies and daddies experience his fatherhood, his, his ness, his, who he is in procreation, in creating, in multiplying, in having more babies. Psalm 127 verses three through five says, behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the room, a reward. The message puts it this way. Don't you see that children are God's best gift, the fruit of the room, his generous legacy. Malachi says, didn't he make you one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Why did he make you one? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God loves those babies. Jesus said, let the children come unto me. And what I think this society has done to us and what I think so many have imbibed or embraced is the lie that children are a liability and they're going to cost me what I want. To deny what God wants to give and to experience how he wants to give through the birth of children is, is it's, it's like saying to God, he, he comes in and he, he hands you a treasure chest and he says, I want you to open this up. Yes, it's going to be weighty and heavy. And yes, when you pack it around, it may put some hurt in your back and it's going to cost you a little bit to move it. But when you open up that treasure chest, you will be filled with treasures and great desires and great delights. And, and young women in this society say, no, my treasure is going to be here. And, and, and what you're getting is like a, a prize out of the Cracker Jack box. 
And because you're young right now, you're sitting there saying to me, Danny, you just don't understand. No, look, I've got 15, 20 years on some of you, and I do understand. And I can tell you as I approach the back end of my life at 35, heading to 70, I can tell you that what I treasure is my wife and my babies and you. And the Bible is very, very, very clear that those babies are a gift. And the reason that I want to make this so clear is because I think that we've got to embrace the truth of who God is and why he gives us sex. He gives it as a reflection, but he also gives it so that we can have kids. We can address the issues of contraceptives. No, none of us need to be having 15 kids. I mean, if you want to have 15 kids, great. I have friends that have 10, 11 kids. They're amazing people, amazing parents. We can talk about uh, tubes getting tied and vasectomies and the whole nine. The Bible is silent on those things. We can talk about condoms. We can talk about the pill. We will talk about all those things just like it's high school health class. But the front end that needs to run into that is God loves babies. So couples, please check your hearts. And again, for those that are in that painful trial of infertility, God grants them the ability to be moms and dads and aunts and uncles to the families. It's just this glorious thing that God works by his spirit. Recognize the cultural lie this morning that you might be believing and don't let it rob you. And number two, repent of any self-serving attitudes. Trust God. He wants to bless you. Now, one other quick thing is that just comes to my mind, especially for the young couples that are getting married in here. Uh, we have a lot of young couples that are either just recently married or getting married. No, I am not saying day one, get pregnant. Absolutely not. There's prudence. There's wisdom. There's, there's waiting. There's patience. There's, I've got a good job as dad. I can provide. I'm ready as mom. I've, you've had those lengthy conversations. The point I'm trying to make very clear is that God wants you to. So are you making your plans that way so that you won't miss out on that treasure chest that's going to follow up? And then, and then address the lies that the culture around you believes. Address them. We freak people out when we talk about how much we love our family. My wife and I. They, they just, they scratch their head. But you got through. Just the other day we were walking somewhere and some old man was like, are all of them yours as we were walking through? It's <laughs> like, yeah, that's my chickens. And then finally, this is what we're going to close with. God gave us sex. He created sex for recreation. You mean like going on vacation, Danny? Kind of. Like going and having fun. When we get through the Song of Solomon and some other verses in the Song of Solomon, what you see in the Song of Solomon is that God is like play. If you are married and you are comfortable and you are not shaming each other, enjoy each other. Absolutely have the greatest, funnest, most vulnerable time. Now, there is so much that stops us, uh, I think, getting to that place of actually seeing sex as enjoyable. I think particularly for the gals, I think sex can be a great, a great burden, a great drudgery. Um, and the Lord, listen to me, sister, the Lord wants to, to refresh you and renew your heart and mind as it comes to sex. He really does. He wants to bring you to a place where, like the wife in the Song of Solomon, not only is... is your husband pursuing you and, and every night, hey, what do you think? What? But where you yourself are actually reaching a point where you're like, you know what? I enjoy this. Not only do I enjoy this, but hey, I'm going to prepare the way. And, and uh, you know, he gives me the whole, I've got a headache tonight. No, no, no. I'm not going for that. God wants to take you there. God wants our sex lives to be filled with passion. Let me address one quick point I think that's important on this. God does not want us living the lie of the pornography that we've watched. 
whether that's you gentlemen on the computer or on videos or ladies, or you ladies reading your romance novels and, and um, you know, which are increasingly more and more uh, degraded. Fifty Shades of Grey is just an S&M novel uh, for women. It's just, a, it's just women's porn. God is not about bringing into the marriage bed the fallen culture's idea of passion and joy and, and all of those things. But God is about discovery and expectancy and desire. And that ebbs and flows in seasons, but sex is to be a blast. So with that said, there's been uh, some questions that have been texted into me, and, and I wanted to just answer one of them. And you guys can text me a question right now as well if you have any questions on this. Next week we'll get into the kind of the nitty-gritty, some of the more dirty details, uh, well, clean details, holy details of sex. Please text me some questions, but one of the questions that came up um, was, is looking at pornography considered adultery? And my initial answer is, yeah. Yeah, it is. Jesus said that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So call it what it is. With every glance, whether it's, you know, the lingerie-clad Victoria's Secret model at the mall as you're walking through, hoping your wife doesn't catch you as you're sneaking along, you're, you're, connect, you're, you're, you're in adultery right there. That's, that's adultery in your heart. You're separating yourself from her mentally and sexually in that moment. Comparing her, putting her into a place that she's not. Um, with that said, the Bible does describe for us degrees of sin and egregiousness. That is, levels of sin that merit um, greater recourse. And so I do not believe that Jesus was saying, if a man, if you catch your man looking at pornography, you now have a right to divorce him. I, I, Jesus wasn't even saying, if you catch your man in bed with another woman, now you surely can divorce him. The stipulations there are that when the marriage covenant has been broke so deeply, not only mentally, not only emotionally, but even physically, now a wife really does, or a husband if he catches his wife in bed with another man, now you do, the covenant has been broken to such a degree, it's so egregious that that union can be broken outwardly. When it comes to pornography, there's just so many different layers and so many different uh, complex issues that are going on that, yes, it's adultery in that Jesus pluck out your eyes sense, but it's not adultery in the physical breaking of the union between two believing people, okay? So I hope that helps a little bit with the porn issue. Uh, we'll address pornography in depth next week for both men and women, how it affects our society, how it's affecting our marriage beds, um, things of that nature. So is there any questions that you guys feel like you'd like to ask this morning while we're on this topic? And, and uh, I recognize the sensitivity of it. But if you have a question, please feel free to ask it. Yeah, Terry. Okay. Yeah.
Yeah. If I understand what you're asking, you're asking kind of about the Malthusian mind frame. Um, it's the the idea that we should cap our population um, because, you know, they're starving kids in Africa, and so why would we have more kids if we can't take care of the kids that we have? And it's a twisted logic. It's an unbiblical logic. It denies the very sovereignty and purposes of God. And I would propose that not only can families have more babies and take care of them, in the, particularly in the West, what it is for us and what they're really saying is, well, they can't each drive their own car and they can't each have their own Xbox. What they're saying is their style of life, they think that all of humanity has to have this this uh, lifestyle that's very lavish. And so if you have more kids and more kids and more kids, you're not going to be able to have that style of life that you want. When the fact of the matter is the kids that are you know, in culture, in society, we can thrive and survive with on much less. Does that make sense? And I honestly don't understand the logic. I don't see the argument at all of we should have less kids because there are kids in Africa starving. I just, I don't see the connect in any way, shape, or form. All right, any other uh, thoughts or questions before we pray here and we're going to worship? Just so you guys know where we're going, we're going to be... one more session on this and then a couple sessions on kids um, and then we're going to be picking up in the book of Zechariah in January um, I just got a question here let me answer this real quick could you flesh out same sex attraction not being sin is it a lust issue wow that's a really good question yeah the way that I would phrase that I think is when a man notices a beautiful woman it is not sin for him to, to know, oh, she's attractive. It is sin when that man says, she's attractive, I'm going to continue to linger on her attractiveness above my wife's. It is sin when he notices an attractive woman and, and begins to imagine or undress her mentally. That is where lust then becomes the sin of lust. But to actually notice and be attracted is not. And so for, I would say, for a man who is struggling with same-sex attraction, that moment of attraction, that moment of, of noticing, and then all of a sudden realizing, oh, man, that was weird. Or for, for people that are, you know, would say that they're born that way, there is that moment of the attraction being there. But sin actually takes place when that attraction is meditated on and multiplied, which eventually bears fruit in action. Attraction meditated on leads to action. And that is where the sin begins to take root. That's a good question. All right, anything else? Okay, let's pray. We'll go to worship. Lord, we just thank you. And we know that our lives are yours. And so, uh, as couples, I pray for the couples in this room that their hearts would just be united right now. And Lord God, that they would be blessed and encouraged and not overwhelmed. I pray, Jesus, for just great grace to manifest in Taproot Church and for your spirit to truly be made much of. And so we leave ourselves in your hands today. We leave our marriage beds in your hands. We leave this church in your hands. And we exalt you. We trust you. Be bringing healing, Lord. And next week, as we get into the details of past hurts and how we view sex and how some of us have been wounded, some of us have been abused, 
Some of us have become perverted and lost. Lord, I pray for great reformation in our hearts. I pray for our our friends and our family members out there who, who Lord, are living sexual lives right now with no meaning and they're, they're uniting their souls with other human beings without commitment, without unconditional love and covenant being the support for that level of intimacy and it's, it's robbing them and breaking them. And so gracious God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use us to preach and teach the gospel the good news that Jesus, you lived perfectly. You lived sexually perfectly as a single man, never sinning, never lusting, never being overcome with that sexual desire because you were living for us in our place. Help us to embrace our sexuality and as we worship you this morning and in this Advent season, may we just ponder the great depth of who you are in sending your son to die for us. We worship you today in Jesus' name, amen.